The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. You could back up the clock 15 years or 20 years. Some of you aren't that old yet, but uh, some of you are. And you could just sit down with yourself 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, what would that conversation go like? What would you tell yourself? 15, 20 years ago. Um, I know a couple things. I, I'd probably tell myself not to be such a, a jerk to my father-in-law when he tried to teach me how to play golf. Um, he spent a lot of time and energy trying to teach me the game. Countless hours, practice range, playing rounds. I remember one time he, he laid out two golf clubs in parallel, kind of like, like this, and he was trying to give me a place to swing a stroke, you know, to, to a pathway to swing. And like my second swing, I hit one of those clubs and dented the club head. It was his son's club head, and it was very expensive. Um, like, that's not good, right? And he was not super happy with me. But, but I just found myself annoyed with him and his investment with me. He kept telling me all these rules about golf. Like, you can't step in the line when someone's putting, and you can't take seven different practice strokes in the sand when you mess up. And I just got really annoyed with him. Um, some of you know I'm still learning and not very good at golf, but, but I, I would love to go back and change that. I'd love to go back and change my attitude some in seminary, uh, particularly my second year as I kind of grasped the, the truth uh, for the first time of God's sovereignty in all things, that he was a much bigger God than I'd ever thought or dreamed. But then I found myself wanting to talk about that and only that to everyone who would just give me a minute, including my wife. And, and until people could see things exactly the way I saw them in my timing— um, I was um, not going to let up. I felt like a bulldog in every conversation. I'd love to go back and talk to that guy and say, you need to chill out and close your mouth some and, and listen to others and have a little bit more of a, a balanced view. And I'm sure when I'm 60 years old, I'll look back at my 39-year-old self. I'm still 39, not 40 yet, 39-year-old self, and, and say, man, I wish I would have learned some things. So look, as we've been studying the book of Samuel, uh, we, we've seen the thesis for the book is that God is king. And this has been demonstrated in countless ways. And yet, as we follow the story, we see the people of Israel still not getting it. Not figuring out that, that they actually can put their trust and hope finally in God. And even the leaders that God raises up, the, the king and the kings, um, are, are still needing to, to learn this lesson. Uh, we, we've seen it uh, particularly in the people's choice for a king in Saul. And from just the way that he's failed to acknowledge God's authority over him. And so he's in this, as we're reading, spiral downward in this self-centered descent. But while he's doing that, David is on the upward rise. And, and he is kind of being lifted up by God. But, but even with David, and we'll see so particularly today, he is learning that trusting God, submitting to God's authority, is not a natural thing to do for him. So he left off last time, if you remember, in a cave where Saul had kind of come in for a restroom break, and David had the opportunity to, to seize him and kill him. So Saul's been pursuing him, trying to kill him, and, and David, instead of doing that, he cuts off the, the corner of his robe in chapter 24. He shows great restraint and trust in, in God. But today, as we look particularly at chapter 25, we're going to see a very similar circumstance present itself to David, and David's going to respond very differently. Okay? 
Um, and so that's why we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna think about this idea of learning and what God is actually doing before our eyes in David's life. So in chapter 24, David is actually the restrainer of his men. His men want to harm Saul, and he says, no, we're not going to be doing that. We're going to trust in the Lord. But today in chapter 25, a fool, literally a fool, um, disrespects David, normal run-of-the-mill Israelite, and David's ready to strap on his sword and destroy him and all of his house. He has to be restrained. And so David is actually going to be on his way to do that, and he's going to be saved, intercepted by that fool's wife, Abigail, who really is the prime example of faith in the story. So David's got to learn a lesson of patience and restraint on this path to trusting God in chapter 25. Then in chapter 26, he's simply going to apply what he's learned in chapter 25 applying what he's learned to trust God and leave room for God's judgment there as he again has an opportunity to take matters into his own hands with Saul. What we're seeing happen in these chapters is the making of a king. God is making David into the kind of king that he wants him to be, but it's messy. It's time-consuming. It's imperfect. Friends, just like it is in our life. Just like it is for us, messy, time-consuming, imperfect. The word disciple simply means, at its base, learner, apprentice. So those of us who are Christians this morning, who are born again, are following Jesus as learners of Jesus. Not just the information, to learn the information that Jesus taught, but learning to obey it in all of our life. And teaching others to do that, to obey the teaching of Jesus. But we know that we come this morning still in process. God's process in us. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to see an example of someone who doesn't have it all together, who needs to be taught, needs to be teachable, and behind it all, the God who is actually at work on him. So the main point of this passage, you could summarize it this way, every part of our life needs to be lived under the authority and rule, the good rule of Almighty God. Every part of our life needs to be submitted to God, His authority and His good rule. In our passage, that takes particular relevance as it relates to justice, as it relates to retaliation, getting back at someone for what they've done to you. We need to learn the lesson of trusting God. God. Listen, that's a lesson we learn for the rest of our lives over and over again. And we, we learn it um, most clearly when we understand that the, the perfect one who came in Christ Jesus is the one who is truly submitted to God in our place. And in him we are made righteous. So what we're going to do is take, take two points. If you have your bulletin, you can see I'm going to make two points, just two observations of these chapters. First, number one, we're going to see the lesson that David learned. So number one, a lesson learned. As we see David's interaction with Nabal and more importantly with Abigail. Then secondly, number two, we're going to just see how that lesson is applied. Lesson applied. Number two, as David puts into practice the lesson that he's learned in chapter five, in 25 and chapter 26. So number one, we're going to look at chapter 25, a lesson learned. Number two, chapter 26, a lesson applied. Most of our time, we're going to be lingering in chapter 25. But these twin realities are so vital for us as as Christians, learning and applying. Not just learning, not just soaking up information, but having that information make its way to transformation in our lives, being applied. Even though that is a messy process, God is at work in it all. That's our, our hope this morning as we look at God's Word. 
So let's first see this lesson that David needs to learn in chapter 25. A lesson learned, number one. A lesson learned. You're going to notice as we go through, two of the three kind of main characters in our story are absent from this passage, kind of. So we read immediately and matter-of-factly, the Bible's like this often when famous people die, of the death of Samuel. So look at verse 1, chapter 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. That's it. Not a lot of elaboration. Um, Samuel died. And all of Israel assembled. It's another way of saying they all came to the funeral. Okay, They all were there and they're all mourning him. But this isn't just a random detail. If you'll notice, it comes right after uh, Saul's confession in chapter 24. Where he finally, it sinks into him that what Samuel has said to him is true. There will be someone else who's going to be king instead of him. And he confesses that. He knows, he says, David, you will be king. And it's as if Samuel gets a cue saying his, his mission is accomplished and he's able to, to let go and Samuel dies. Samuel's not done in our story. He'll show up again, interestingly, but we'll leave that for later in the book. Samuel's so out of chapter 25 and 26. And Saul is basically out as well, uh, particularly chapter 25. But there's someone in this story that reminds us of Saul very, very much. And so as I introduce Nabal to you, I want you to think how similar he sounds to Saul. So look at uh, continuing there in verse 1. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So this is uh, the description that we get here about this man. He lives in Moan, Moan, which is this region, if you remember, where Saul captured David back in chapter 23. And Carmel is only a few miles away where, where Saul actually set up a monument for himself, if you remember, back in chapter 15. So you have these little clues, these pinpoints that remind us of things that, that Saul has done. And, and, and it doesn't stop there. It's interesting that you hear about Nabal's possessions before you even hear about his name. He was a man of great riches. Listen, if you're ever introduced to somebody and say, listen, I have a rich friend. His name is, I don't usually get introduced that way, but, but if you have a, a friend like that, you know the main thing about this the guy you need to know is that he has money. Well, that's how we are introduced to Nabal. So he has, again, the outward box is checked for Nabal. These outward things are going for him. He has great wealth. Look at all these sheep and goats. But that's all he has. So the, the, the word Nabal in Hebrew means fool. That's what it means, fool. I don't know if his mother decided to name him that, or if that's just the way that the author is referring to him here in the story. But he is the quintessential example in the Bible of a fool. So even though he has this godly lineage, he's a Calebite, he is a fool. He is harsh and he is badly behaved. He's referenced here as a worthless man or worthless fellow. He's called that by his servants and his wife multiple times, which connects him, if you'll remember, with the other worthless fellows in the book of 1 Samuel who don't know or fear God, who are called the the sons of Belial. However, he is married to a godly woman named Abigail. She's the polar opposite of Nabal. She is discerning and beautiful. 
And we're going to see that play out in our story. I think that, that order is important. Discerning and beautiful. Her beauty is not only skin deep, but it's actually defined and shaped by her godliness and wisdom. That's key to understand. Her beauty is not skin deep. It's defined and shaped by her godliness and wisdom. Now, how did this couple get together? I don't know. No idea. We can assume Nabal's money maybe had something to do with it. Arranged marriages had something to do with it. We're not told. But we, we, we keep going on through the story, and we see David crossing paths now with the fool, Nabal, and his shepherds in the wilderness. So listen, ancient Near Eastern custom would say that if you, if you are aiding someone else in where you have the opportunity to take advantage of them, but you aid them and help them, then it would be natural for some hospitality to be extended to you in return. And so that, that would be the, the setting for what's happening now um, in chapter 25. But a fool's logic is a little bit different. So look at verse 4 of chapter 25. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in, his, in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have in hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said, All this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So that escalated quickly. Um, now, certainly, you, you get to know Nabal a little bit by his actions. His heart comes out in the way that he responds to David. He's a man who's defined by his possessions. And he's not ready to part with them easily. Right? Notice those, those personal pronouns there in verse 11. My bread, my water, my meat that I have killed my servants. And there's little chance that, that he didn't know who David was in this story. He, he somehow knows here that he's the son of Jesse. Interesting, that's the way Saul refers to David throughout the story. There's many points of agreement between Saul and Nabal. He returns good for evil in his selfishness, same way that Saul does. Isaiah describes a fool uh, in chapter 32 this way. Chapter 32, Isaiah chapter 32, verse 6. For the fool, Nabal, speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. That's exactly what Nabal does here. Now, we should expect this, I think, from him as we look at like his name, and we understand who he is. We have a category for fools uh, in the Bible. Fools produce foolishness. 
That's something that, that we need to remember, particularly if you're, if you're sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't know the Lord. You shouldn't expect them to live out things in a way that God is a priority to them, that they would care about God or care about his glory in any way. If you have a, a friend that you're trying to, to talk to about Jesus, maybe you shouldn't start with just them just changing their morality. Uh, they, you need to begin with the heart and what, what actually does change that morality the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a parent and you're struggling with the continued disobedience of your child, remember what Proverbs 22 says. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That, that's what's there. Okay, And so we need to be reminded of that as we parent and know that we need to have a long-term kind of view in place. But more troubling than Nabal's response, I think, is David's. There seems to be this ironic twist in that phrase, when he, he's like, all right, guys, strap on your swords. We're going to get this guy. I mean, he's not going to have coffee. Strap on your swords. This comes from the man who coined the phrase in the battle against Goliath, the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, 1 Samuel seventeen forty-seven. David said that. And this is David who, who just spared the man in the cave who was actively trying to kill him out of fear of the Lord. Chapter 24. Friends, we all know there's a difference sometimes between the words that we say and the way that we actually respond in real time, in real life. And we see that inconsistency in David. We see it in our own hearts, in our own lives. Now the circumstances are a bit different and he is resorting to quick violence and vengeance. Proverbs 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So there's two strands of foolishness at work here. Nabal's is really obvious. He doesn't fear God. He's all about himself. And so we expect him to live no differently. But what about David? What about us? How do you personally handle that reflex that comes up of retaliation? That, that sometimes happens in the heat of the moment. Sometimes it happens in your quiet thoughts as you kind of replay the day and think about or, or weeks past what someone did to you and how much it hurt and what you would like to do to them. Maybe it results in just the silent treatment or maybe it results in something more visible, even more violent. Would you say that you're more characterized by personal restraint and patience or quick words and retaliation against others. And I'm really just talking to myself now. You guys are welcome to listen in. What would your spouse say to that? What would your children say to that? Your parents, your close friends? Love, you know, patience and restraint are actually symptoms of a heart that trusts in God, not just a shy person. Okay? They're, they're examples of someone who trusts in God to handle the difficulties that frustrate us so much, just as retaliation in our own strength is a symptom of a lack of trust in God. And so we have to understand that, like David, we are a work in progress. Sometimes we've done well at this. Maybe even this week has been a, a great week for us, but at other times we realize we've, we fall short, like David does here. And so we need to be constantly learning, particularly learning our own hearts. Learning where we tend to, to err in the side of pride that associates itself with kind of taking God's place as the ruler in our lives. And not leaving room in our lives for God to actually work things out. I wonder how you're kind of strapping on your sword, so to speak. 
in a situation that you're facing right now. I think we'll see the pattern in 1 Samuel that when things happen with our own hands, they tend to relate to things coming up to us with our own, for our own glory and not for God's. And we always tend to, when we jump into these kind of modes of retaliation, regret what we've done. So, so David is on this personal mission of vengeance. But notice how God raises up in his grace a savior for him to intercept him on this road to foolishness. And it begins with the courageous words of a servant in verse 14. The servant isn't named which is typical, again, of the Bible, but he does a very important thing. He makes a connection between the situation and Abigail. So pick it up there in chapter 25, verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both night and day, and all the while we were with them keeping their sheep, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master, and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot even speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she rode on a donkey, and he came down under the cover of the mountain. Behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met him. Now David had said, this is presumably in the past, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed all that belonged to him. And as he has returned me evil for good, God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one man of all who belong to him. David is, is ticked off here. Um, Saul has, or, or rather Nabal has, like Saul, returned David evil for good. But instead of doing what David did in chapter 24, leaving room for God's judgment, he now takes it into his own hands. And he declares that every male of Nabal's will die. If you have the King James Version, it's a little bit more colorful than that. But Abigail wastes no time, does she? And starting to see, and we see her part to play in this story that is absolutely central. She, she hears the news and immediately acts in faith to save, listen, her worthless husband. And then his entire house and David from doing something that he's going to deeply regret. That might even disqualify him from being king. So they meet there in verse 23 and Abigail just gives the most important speech of the passage. This is the lesson that David must learn. And this is key for us to understand this chapter and the next. That he must trust the Lord if he's truly to be king. So look at what she says, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent." 
Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall be a sling out, will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord, working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. So if Nabal is an example of a fool, his wife Abigail is the exact opposite. An example of godliness, boldness, a big faith in a big God. So unlike her husband, she actually sees David for who he is and sees God's hand at work, even in these crazy circumstances. We don't know a whole lot about Abigail, but we can assume that as she has spent some time married to Nabal, she too has learned how to trust God. She humbles herself before David. She assumes the guilt of her husband's actions and then seeks David's forgiveness. She shows how she trusts in God by, by trying to point out that David is going to have a sure house. You know, that's the same language that's used in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. She is speaking prophetically here of what God is going to do with David. But this also reminds David who he is and what he must do. There's this subtle reference to the David and Goliath scene there in verse 29. That idea of God slinging out David's enemies with a sling. If you remember, that was the weapon that he used against Goliath. She's pointing him to trust in God. She interprets what's going on here, her intercepting him, as saving him from blood guilt and from acting really like Saul and taking matters into his own hands. Friends, This is just amazing. An incredible example from, from Abigail. So I just want to pause here and, and think over this, this story and, and, and Abigail in particular, her shrewd, kind of bold, faith-filled example and just how crucial that is to this whole story, to David's whole life. God, God uses her to shape and to mold David through this lesson into who God is actually making David to be. And you just need to know that, that she is one of many just godly females like, like, like this in our situation that, that are used as examples, held up as examples of godliness and faithfulness in the Bible. Um, the Bible is clear that, that the gifts and the boldness and the faithfulness of the ministry of women like this is absolutely essential. Essential to God's work in the church and in the world. And that's just something for us to be reminded of and to cherish as we find ourselves in a local church, surrounded by women, a lot of women like Abigail, some literally Abigails, uh, but, but, but many who are like her, with great gifts and great, who have already great immeasurable impact on what God is doing here. 
So as a church, we are, we are complementarian in our, in our view of men's and women's roles. And that just means that, that we know that God in the Bible has given men and women particular roles to play in the church and in the family. But friends, we also need to be really clear that in no way does that reflect a difference in worth or value. There's been some confusion about that, I think, in our day. But listen, the Bible isn't confused. About, about the role of women and the importance of, of women in God's work. And I just thank God for the many gifted women who, who teach and disciple and, and serve here and take part in what God is doing at Redeemer. What a blessing it is for me to see that from my perspective and, and to be personally encouraged by you in the way that God is using you in such a, an amazing, encouraging way. And so I just want you to be refreshed and reminded by this example here of of Abigail to continue to point others to the grace of God in boldness, using the gifts that that God has has given you. Um, I think it's interesting just to compare. There's this interesting study of David and kind of his wives and and the way that that those things kind of work themselves out. But you see in in Abigail this, this beauty that David is obviously drawn to. He's going to eventually going to, she's going to be his wife. But it produces this godly fruit. Whereas in Bathsheba, she has a different kind of beauty that produces a different kind of fruit. Abigail's wife is saved from, from, from death as David is on his way to, to, to kill him. And Bathsheba's husband is not. It's the opposite. And so I'm just, I'm just thankful for the example of Abigail and the way that the fruit of her, her godliness is shown. And for the example that we have in so many ladies at Redeemer. And so we see David responding here to Abigail's words with um, great thankfulness. He realizes the Lord has actually just intervened to save him and, and from taking matters into his own hands. So listen to what he says, verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. The story isn't over here. We see David um, responding well and, and and leaving justice to the Lord. And we get to see, we don't always see this, but a really real-time example of God's justice happening in God's timing, in God's way. So if you continue to read there in verse 36, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received in the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So Nabal does not fear God. Nabal does not acknowledge God. But he does meet God in death. Later, David would write in Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt 
They do abominable, abominable deeds. There is none who does good. When we live our lives apart from thankfulness to God and obedience to God and love for God, we live as fools. That's the definition of foolishness. We treat God like Nabal treats David here. We've received good from God and we return evil. He offers us peace. We have rejected it. He is our creator who gives us all things. And we say, this is mine and this is mine and this is mine and this life is mine and I'll do what I want to do with it. We deserve justice and we too need a mediator, someone who will step in front of us on our road to judgment. We won't read the rest of chapter 25, but I'll just summarize quickly what happens. Abigail, now left as a widow, ends up marrying David, along with um, Ahoam, Ahinoam, rather, of Jezreel. And so that's kind of a subtle, I think, red flag that David is taking on kind of multiple wives, particularly if you read Deuteronomy 17 and the instructions there. We won't go into that too much. But I want you to just look at verse 44 as we transition to the next chapter. Notice that Saul takes away Michal from David. David was married to Saul's daughter. Saul takes her away and gives her to another man. I just want you to imagine that. Think about how you might take that, men as a husband, what that might stir up in you, and let that kind of transition us to the next chapter. So we've learned this lesson. We'll see. David has been taught this lesson. But has he really learned it? So let's look at number two, a lesson applied. Uh, Someone has said that the Lord hammers out his will on the anvil of human circumstances. Uh, And I think we're seeing that happen in David's life. David didn't really make the connection between chapter 24 and 25 when the circumstances have changed. And now Nabal is in the place of Saul. In the cave, you remember, of En Gedi, Saul stopped for a restroom break. David was stricken in conscience because he cut off the corner of his robe. And David left room for judgment for the Lord. But David shows that he's not a finished product. Abigail models for David the lesson he's to learn, but did he truly get it? Chapter 26 gives us our answer with an almost identical situation to chapter 24. David applies the lesson he's learned about trusting in God, about patience and restraint. Look at chapter 26, verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jezimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill at Hakalah, which is beside the road to the east of Jezimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner Abner and the army lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. 
or his day will come to die, or he will go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So you see just how similar the story is to chapter 24. Many scholars believe it's the same story, just told from a different perspective. But if you look at it just kind of just a little bit closely, you'll see that these are two different situations, not a cave. We're on a hill. David is now sending out spies, and he's pursuing Saul. Um, and, and we're talking about spears and water, not, not robes and restrooms. Okay? And so we know that David is, is a different person now after kind of knowing Abigail and learning the lesson that he learned in chapter 25. And so that kind of bubbles up when Abishai says, let me pin this guy to the ground. It'll only take once. And David just responds with this trust in the Lord. The Lord may strike him. The Lord will, or he will die in battle under God's sovereignty, or, or something will happen. But, but he is trusting in the Lord, I think, learning, direct, learning directly from Nabal in his, his life, and his situation. David doesn't seem to know how the details are going to work. He's there in the middle of the camp and doesn't know that there's a deep sleep that's, that everyone is under because the Lord has, has put them in this deep sleep. He's just working on, working on obedience, working on extending grace to Saul. And so after he grabs the spear and the water jug, he, he kind of goes a safe distance away and he calls out and everyone wakes up to listen. You can read the, the rest of the chapter there. But as he calls out to Abner and he calls out to Saul, again he approaches with that same humility. He calls himself a flea, he calls himself a, a bird of prey, that, that, that he is not going to harm anyone. Why are you coming after me? And Saul again realizes what he's done and admits that he has acted foolishly. And he invites David to return to him in this, in this place of Saul's army. David goes on his own way. He, he trusts the Lord, not Saul, so much. But he actually returns the spear back to Saul. That spear that zoomed past his ear multiple times, just showing his trust in God again that can continue and protect him in the future. And they depart after Saul gives him a blessing. And, and this is the last time David and Saul are going to see each other. And I'm just struck again by, by this picture of David as a, as a learner, kind of in this character, the school of character and with the ways of God. Nabal and Saul are both characterized by stubbornness, by a lack of teachability. And Nabal's servant even said he's a worthless man that no one can speak to in chapter 25. If you're a Christian here this morning, I hope that's never said of you or of me. That we are absolutely capable for correction. Able to be taught. Able to, be, to, to, to change and to hear what we've done wrong and to repent to admit that we've been heading down the path of foolishness. Only you've ever been in a conversation with someone, and as the conversation goes on, you know in your heart what they're saying is right, and you're wrong. But you continue to argue because you want to win the argument, not because you know that you're, you're, that you're, that you're right. Maybe I'm the only one who's actually, actually done that. But beloved, we must be approachable. We must be teachable and, and quick to repent and to apologize to learn a better way to learn God's way. And so we see David and we see Abigail and we see Saul and Nabal. And it's just good for us to see this as real life. And where do we find ourselves 
in that story. David shows himself to be a learner, a man who can admit his failings and change course. But he's not going to always take the righteous route. There's going to be other circumstances that come, other opportunities to take things into his own hands, and he'll do that. We need to be reminded that only Jesus has ever been fully submitted to God in everything. Only Jesus has, has fully obeyed. Only Jesus' life is, is worthy of a sacrifice to atone for our sins. In so many ways we see that pictured, even in the, the life and the role of Abigail in this story. Jesus, too, stands in our path, doesn't he? Um, as we kind of tread down the road to, to judgment and coming wrath. Jesus, too, seeks to save the undeserving fools like us. Jesus, too, assumes guilt that was not his. Jesus, too, makes an atoning offering for sin. Jesus, too, keeps us from from trying to bring about salvation by our own hand. We can only be saved through him. Friend, are you trusting Jesus? Are you a disciple? a learner from Jesus who is helping others to obey all that he's commanded? Or are you finding yourself just kind of on that road of foolishness? And if so, maybe God is actually intercepting you even today from taking things into your own hands or stubbornly just holding on to something. Maybe that's a negative view of someone in in this church. Maybe you're holding on to a sin Maybe you're holding on to this attitude of of pride that needs to be repented of and released today. This learning can be really, really messy. But God calls us to do it together. He puts the Davids and the Abigails together that we might encourage and sharpen one another. And through all of that, that mess and failure, God is shaping us into a people whose lives are submitted to him in everything. He's making us into the image of his son. And may he do it for his glory here at this place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time and your word. And Lord, we pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would not be stubborn and foolish by holding on to our sin or refusing to learn, refusing to change our course. You would give us a humility, give us a desire to please you above all else. And Lord, I do pray that you would raise up many Abigails in this congregation, godly women whose beauty is defined and shaped by their discernment, by their wisdom, by their love for you and for your word. And they would be used mightily in ministry. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in us. We thank you that you took the judgment that we deserved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.